Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor, and I want to invite you to uh, pull out your bulletin. There's a place there to take notes. We're going to be talking about some deep, we're going to be treading in deep waters today uh, as we continue this series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, in this series, we've been recognizing that spiritual maturity uh, is made up of emotional maturity, that you can't have one without the other. Um, that, and, uh, and so in this series, we saw in the first message that God is emotional. Uh, and so because God's emotional, it's okay for us and even necessary for us to be emotional in whatever way is authentic to us. Not everyone's going to be emotional in the exact same ways. Um, and then last week, we saw that we need to integrate our intellect and our emotions, that both need to be at the table uh, to understand who we are, why we react the way we do. Um, and so we, uh, using the image of the iceberg, um, we're trying to look below the surface in our lives to see what else is there, what else influences us, what else affects us. And last week, I introduced you to this idea of, of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Um, we had this image that we shared. Um, go to the next slide. Uh, this image, and, and the table was round, you remember, because at the table, everyone there is equal. So there's no head of the table at the round table. And last week, we saw that in the table of your life, the, the knights at the table are you, your intellect, and your emotions, that all three are there, and so you need to hear from both your intellect and your emotions. You need to integrate both of them to be your most mature self. So ignoring either one has radically negative consequences in your relationships, both with God and with other people. Um, but these aren't the only knights that are at the table. There are more knights. There's another knight that we're going to look at today, another knight that we need to invite to the table uh, this other night has a major influence on who you are, the decisions that you make, the reactions that you have. And this new night is your family of origin. Your family of origin. So family of origin means that the family that we come from going back three to four generations. So you're thinking about you, you're thinking about dad, granddad, great-granddad. So we're talking three to four generations, no matter who you are. Okay, whether you think you are like the family that you've come from or not, uh, whether you are a product and a chip off the old block or you are a violent reactor to the family that you came from, your family has a huge impact on who you are. A huge impact. The Bible says this is true both in principle and in practice. And so we're going to look at both uh, principle and practice. We're going to start with the principle. So I'm going to share with you Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It says this. It's a description of God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So that last phrase, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the principle. And there's several places in the Bible that repeat this theme. 
And this is a description of the way that the world works. Sin is passed down from generation to generation. It's important to understand that God doesn't force this to happen, but it happens naturally because parents and family creates a culture that kids grow up thinking is normal. It is very rare for a child to say, dang, what's wrong with this family? Most of the time, way before they have the capacity to know that they could say that, usually kids' reactions growing up is not what's wrong with this family. It's normally what's wrong with me that I'm feeling this way. What's wrong with me? Kids grow up thinking that what goes on in their family is normal. And before they find out it might not be, it's already too late. Um, there are thousands of things that parents do to, uh, that their kids don't even question. And most of these things aren't a big deal, like habits, hobbies, the way you shave, the way you brush your teeth. I mean, like some of this stuff just doesn't matter at all, but our kids, you know, pick it up. And some things really do matter. Some things are big. They're enormous. Um, and this is true in every family. And it's not just bad, okay? There's good, bad, and ugly in every family. Um, but... The Bible wants us to understand that sins are passed down. So your sins will and do affect your kids. The, uh, one of the ways the Bible articulates this principle is just by, by saying that you reap what you sow. Um, this is just how the world works. So whatever you plant with your life, you plant in your kids. And everything grows in them. Everything. So think about the family that you grew up in, okay? Was it affirming or complaining? Was it critical or was it approachable? Was it angry or intense? Was it playful, cooperative? Was it competitive? Was it close or distant? Was it serious or fun? I mean, attitudes and behaviors are what the phrase is, they're caught, not taught. So whether you teach your kids, hey, this is something that our family does, they catch everything. They just, they're, they're like rods, they're like magnetic rods. Everything just, it, it makes impressions on them. Um, there are some families that are a place of fun where people feel loved and the members feel appreciated. Um, even teasing can be a lighthearted contribution to the joy of a family. And then other families are harsh and controlling, right? You got a parent or a spouse that's angry and critical and never satisfied. Uh, both of these things create a culture that has a serious impact on kids. And so this is the principle, but we also see this in practice when the Bible shows us the lives of successive generations of families. And we see this in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis, so Genesis 12 through 50 is sort of the story of the patriarchs, is one of the ways that they're referred to. And so we're going to look at some of the generational sins that existed in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in terms of generational sins, the first thing that we see is a pattern of lying. There's a pattern of lying that existed. Um, Genesis chapter 20 
verse 1. Um, do we have that slide? Genesis 20, verse 1? Yeah, there we go. So from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. That means took her to be his wife. Um, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, behold, you're a dead man. Imagine that God shows up. <laughs> you're a dead man. Jeez. Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Well, Abimelech goes into a frenzy. He grabs Abraham the next day in verse 10. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God in this place. And they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So he's like, technically what I was saying was true. Like, she is kind of my half-sister, but you know. Um, all right, so this is Abraham. Abraham does this. And then six chapters later in Genesis 26, his son does the same exact thing. Check this out, Isaac. Genesis 26, verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. We've heard this before. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, that's his wife, because she was attractive in appearance. My goodness, right? This is the exact, it's like the same thing in the same place. So, verse 9, Abimelech. <laughs> He's like, wait a second. Really? We're going through this again? So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And, you know, these are summaries of the conversation. So, you know, I would imagine Abimelech would be like, your dad did the same thing. Come on. Like, really? Didn't he tell you the story? We, we, we got it. God showed up. He's going to kill me. I'm not going to do this. That part's not in the text. <laughs> so Abimelech called Isaac. Behold, she's your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Like father, like son. Right? Well, then after Isaac, Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob's name means liar. <laughs> like lying characterized all of Jacob's life. He, and then Jacob, turnabout's fair play, because Jacob ended up lying to his father and deceiving and manipulating his father and his brother to get God's blessing. And then Jacob has 12 sons, right? And when he had 11 of his sons, 10 of Jacob's sons lied to their father, Jacob. So the deceiver got deceived. Um, they lied to them about Joseph's death. They faked a funeral and they kept this like family secret that we don't talk about. We don't tell anybody. We just just sweep it under the rug. Some of us know about it. Like family secrets, they kept this for over 10 years. And so this is one of the generational sins of lying that was passed down from father to son and father to son. And it characterized a lot more than just the fathers and the sons. So other generational sins that we can see if you look at 
Abraham's family, you see favoritism because Abraham preferred Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau. Like, Isaac liked Esau. His wife, Rebekah, liked Jacob. I mean, that they knew that. Man, then Jacob favored Joseph and Benjamin because they were the children of his special wife. Um, And then there's polygamy and the mistreatment of wives. I mean, polygamy by itself is a mistreatment of wives, but if you read, you can see that the way that the women were treated was awful. It was awful. It wasn't condoned. It produced unbelievable chaos by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, Then you see that both the wives and the concubines are at war with each other. It's like the war of jealousy, where they're trying to outmaneuver each other, outdo each other. It gets crazy. Like one buys an aphrodisiac from the other so she can sleep with the, you know, it's like, look, my turn tonight, can I have that, those mandrakes? Because evidently mandrakes, you know, helped you get pregnant. Um, Crazy stuff went on between Sarah and Hagar, between Rachel and Leah. Um, And then the brothers were constantly at war with each other, constantly jealous of each other. Isaac versus Ishmael, Jacob versus Esau, the 10 brothers versus Joseph. And there was this characteristic that flows through Genesis, which in some ways brings some comfort to us as we read how flawed these people were, and yet they walked with God and were the family through whom God would bring blessing to all the world. Like that's gospel grace and wonder that God would use people like us, but everyone seemed to think that it was okay to sin as long as you were chasing after God's will, you know? It's like, well, I need to provide for myself, so it's okay for me to steal from my company or steal from the government, right? And so sinning to achieve God's will happened over and over and over again. Um, And so this is real in the families in the Bible, where the principle of the sins of the parents being visited to the children, to the third and fourth generations, happens in the Bible. It's also real in our families. Um, I've got my own experiences. I've got to be careful about this, right? Because, um, well, I guess I can talk about my dad. My dad's good to talk about with, um, my dad really tried hard to love me. And the way that my dad tried to love me was by trying to make me the best I possibly could be. Okay? Make sense? Here's what I received from my dad. (laughs) In all of his efforts to love me in this way, all I ever heard from him was, Stephen, you're not good enough. Now, I grew up with that, and that caused me to be driven to be perfect, driven to be good enough, but never feeling like I ever made it. Um, Now, in the gospel, in the gospel, I've been able to sort of process this with God, because as I've gotten to know Jesus, um, I've realized that that's not how God feels about me. That's not what the gospel teaches God's disposition is toward me. Um, And so, and in the midst of this, God says things like, look, Stephen, I know that you've been hurt, but I'm going to bring some pretty significant good out of this harm that was done to you. And so, now, I am wired to be very thorough. Because anytime I was going to talk to my dad about anything, and and I love my dad, there are things I celebrate about my dad, I'm just going to, but you know, because it's the message, right, I got to talk about this, and I want you to hear like clear examples of this. Um, Whenever I would talk to my dad about anything, I had 
I, I felt like I was going before a defense attorney. Like, or I was going to be cross-examined. That's, that's what it is. I felt like I was going to be cross-examined. So I needed to not just be ready to tell him what was going on, but I needed to be ready to hear every objection and every place he was going to point his finger at and ask me, what about this? What about this? What about this? And if I didn't have an answer, I was going to walk away feeling like I disappointed my dad. You know? So my goal was that we'd finish the conversation, I would deal with every objection that he had, and that he would be satisfied and be like, all right. Okay, sounds good. I can't poke any holes in this, you know? Like, that was the, sort of the dynamic. Well, now, because of that, I am wired to be incredibly thorough. I'm, I'm wired to notice detail, and I'm wired to respond very thoroughly to objections. And so, um, those are good things that, well, they can be good things. Um, <laughs> not always good things, right? Um, but, so what I've done, uh, what I've learned to do, uh, with God's help, is to celebrate the good, but then grieve and seek to improve what's broken, right? Seek to grieve and improve what's bad. Um, because there are lies that we get led to believe that come from our families. And some of those lies are active sins that our parents commit against us. A lot of times, though, it's stuff they didn't intend, but came across negatively, like, we received it negatively. They didn't mean it that way. And so it kind of sucks because there's not something for them to own necessarily, like, that they did wrong, but then we were really hurt, you know? And how do you manage that? Well, you manage that by processing this with, with God, with community, sometimes with therapy. Um, and so sometimes our parents did stuff that they need to own, and hopefully they'll, you know, get to a place to, to repent of, but sometimes they don't. And we have to deal with it without them. Um, but then sometimes it's just like being too busy sometimes communicates that the kids aren't important enough to prioritize. You know, that's the, the kind of damage where kids can feel like they're not good enough. The point is that all of us are given good, bad, and ugly from our parents. And again, we want to celebrate the good and then grieve and redeem what's bad. There's a, a concept uh, of triggering where you feel like your emotions get triggered. Um, you might not be aware of it happening to you because it just happens. <laughs> um, but sometimes our emotions get triggered because someone said or did something, at least to me, that, is, that made me feel like my dad made me feel. And so in the same way that I put on my defensive explaining and being thorough response to my dad, you might get that from me, even though you're not my dad, because I can't tell the difference. My body can't tell the difference. My emotions can't tell the difference. All that I know is that I'm being pushed and I'm being questioned in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable. And so my defense of that is to bring up all the ways I responded to my dad, even though you're not my dad. And so triggering sometimes is us making connections about things that have happened in the past from our families. They come out. And this can happen in friendships, it can happen in marriages, it can happen with your kids, this can happen at work with your boss. I mean, it's, it's kind of pervasive. It's important for us to do our best to notice when we emotionally react, because there might be something there that we can look at. And so, the key, like I said before, celebrate the good and then grieve the bad. We want to grieve the bad. You want to admit, oh, hey, okay, 
this is part of my family's story. Like I have received this from my parents. Um, you want to grieve that and you want to bring it to God. You want to confess it as sin to God. If you've seen that sin manifest in your life, you want to confess it as your own sin. If it hasn't, if it's only hurt you but not necessarily come from you, then you want to acknowledge with God that you are in a family where this sin is being passed down. Um, and you want to declare to God that you want to be rid of it. Okay, and this is one of the ways that the Bible talks about the word repent. So we can repent of generational sins. So whatever your list might look like, repenting of these sins means admitting they're part of your family and saying, God, I want to be rid of these. I want to be done with these. I want to start a new trajectory. I want to create a new family line. Um, and when we do this, like the gospel's response is forgiveness and freedom. Okay, I want to show you something in Ezekiel chapter 18. This is a bit of a long passage I want to read to you because it's, but it's, it's detailed. You'll see it speaks directly to this issue of generational sins and how repentance, how turning from those sins, confessing them to God, and starting something new is the key for us to reverse the trend, to change the direction of generations. So Ezekiel 18, verse 14 says, Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes, he shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, Right, You being one of these people who understands the principle of the Bible that God visits the sins of the fathers down on the third and fourth generation. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. He shall live. God says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And so, friends, like you need to understand <clears throat> that God has a plan for generational sin. And that plan to deal with generational sin is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. It's God wanting us, and, and it, was like, it was like Ezekiel wasn't enough. 
Ezekiel's message to his people wasn't enough. God said, look, I've told you over and over and over again, if you would just turn, you can start fresh. If you just turn, then I will forgive you and you won't be responsible. You won't repeat the sins of your parents if you just turn to me. And this doesn't mean that you have to obey perfectly. That's not what these verses are saying. God is saying when someone turns from living a life apart from me to having a relationship with me, when they turn the direction of their life and orient their lives around me and my authority and my will and my desires, when that's the desire of their heart, that's when they'll live. I forgive them and I give them new hope. And they start on a new trajectory. And this is exactly what's repeated in the New Testament in Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so here you have clear teaching that if you repent, if you turn from your sinful ways and believe in Jesus, you will be forgiven and you will be filled with the Spirit of God himself. That God will be with you And then it goes on in verse 39, it says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so what Peter is saying here is that in the new covenant, when Jesus comes, this new thing that Jesus is bringing to earth where God's kingdom is coming, right, in this new thing, if you turn, the promise will be for you and for your kids, The sins will not be visited on your kids, but Jesus' blood will be visited on them. That the new direction of your life will be passed down from generation to generation. That your love for Jesus will be on display and will be caught, even if it's not taught to your kids. And so there's this redemption of the family that happens in the Bible. There's a redemption of the family in the Old and the New Testaments. This is our chance, is to take the generational sins of our parents and our grandparents and to reverse them by the power of the gospel. How do we do it? By turning, by repenting and believing in Jesus. It's by owning the bad and the ugly in our family's lives. It's by saying, okay, here is everything that I can see that has characterized our family. Here's all of what's negative. Here's all of what's broken. God, I'm sorry that I'm part of a family that is characterized by this. It would be wonderful for, hum- for your humility if you were also to say, and God, here are the ways that I know I've manifested these broken things in my own life. So I'm not condemning my family. I'm condemning me and my family, right? It's turning to God and saying, God, forgive us. Forgive us and start fresh with me. Like start over. Peter is clear, he says, you will receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the beginning, right? This is the beginning. We talk about asking Jesus into our hearts. Like committing to Jesus means receiving his spirit so that God lives, he dwells in our hearts. And this is exciting, 
especially when it first happens for you, when you first come to a place where you either give your life to Jesus or you are growing up in the faith and all of a sudden it becomes real for you. This is a really wonderful experience that you have where you feel like for the first time you actually understand God and you have a sense that you have a relationship with him. And you're like, wow, I've got Jesus in my heart and everything's new, everything's different, right? And then after a few years, you realize, yeah, you know, Jesus is in my heart, but grandpa is still in my bones. Um, You realize that even though everything is new, you're still a product of the family that you came from. You realize that there are things that you weren't aware of, that you weren't thinking about, that you weren't focused on, that have been bequeathed to you from your family history. And there are deep ruts, there are deep areas of brokenness in your life that don't come out right away, but show up again uh, the older you get. And this is frustrating. This is frustrating, but... Um, you know, and, and it's the, the Jesus is in my heart, but grandpa's in my bones is a quote from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it's this reality that it's true that both things can be true at once. That God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, but if we don't apply the gospel, if we don't apply our relationship with God to the broken areas of our life, we will continue to repeat them. And so there is a measure of spiritual maturity that includes us looking at and trying to improve and to fix the brokenness of our families. There, uh, the cellist, Yo-Yo Ma, um, is, uh, he was interviewed, NPR did this interview of him several years ago, and he said that his father told him something really profound. And it was this. It takes three generations to make a musician. So three. It takes three generations to make a musician. The first generation to leave poverty, the second to go to school, and the third to master an instrument. This is powerful. Think about this. It takes three generations. So if Yo-Yo Ma's grandfather um, fell in love with music and wanted to be a a master, like an artist as a musician, he wouldn't be able to do it. Why? Well, because he was a poor fisherman. He was scraping by. And so the first generation goes from abject poverty to providing enough, to working hard enough to be able to provide so that his dad could go to school and get an education right? And then his dad, if his dad had a love for music, which I think his dad was a musician, but not to the same caliber, um, and not that anybody's the same caliber, actually, but, but his dad went to school and had an even better economic trajectory with even more freedom to be able to provide music lessons for Yo-Yo Ma. And so it wasn't until the third generation that there was enough space, there was enough opportunity, there was enough of a chance for him to even become uh, really a true master of an instrument. And I think this is brilliant. Like, this is so helpful for us. Because, look, guess what? For some of you, there are areas of brokenness in your life where when you turn to Jesus, 
you are going to be the first generation. All of us want to be artists. All of us want to be masters of our spirituality. Well, not all of us, but a lot of us do, right? We want to really be rid of a bunch of stuff that's in our lives. We want to be walking after God, and, and we want to have patterns of our lives that, that contribute to our communion with him and our relationship with him. And yet, some of you are in the first generation of Christians in your life. Some of you are just getting out of absolute spiritual poverty. And guess what? If you're there, Jesus says you're blessed. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you have to understand, this is one of the reasons why comparing ourselves to other people is, is a fool's game. It's a fool's game because by the time you become 18, there are an infinite number of ways that you are different from every other 18-year-old. And so any comparison to anyone else is not worth it. it, it it's, it's, it's a lie to think that you should be where anyone else is is not how Jesus looks at you. Um, Jesus looks at your past. Jesus looks and says, um, are you moving out of spiritual poverty? If you are, Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Like you are a full inheritor. And so some of us have received things um, that are so broken. I, I mean, really, like, let, let me just say it like this. I was, I was talking to somebody this week who, um, who spent an enormous amount of time heavily invested in a part of the world that was so deeply evil that the best hope that she had was to do everything that she could to hopefully slow down the acceleration into evil of her society. You understand what I'm saying? That the society was so evil and accelerating into greater and greater and greater evil that her presence of victory for Jesus there was trying to get the acceleration to slow down. So by the time she's done, it's still getting worse. It's still accelerating, but it's not accelerating as fast. And so... Friends, man, like some of you need to be good to yourselves. Like some of you need to relax about the standard that you're calling yourself to. Some of you need to realize that, you know what, what you've been handed is so broken and has been broken for so long that if all you can do is get out of poverty, man, Jesus is honored. Before my dad passed, I tried to really make sure that I asked him about his dad because I didn't know anything about him. And I talked about 
some of that in, in messages a few weeks ago, but I did learn that my grandpa was so much worse than my dad, and it was so wonderful for me to be able to see my dad against the backdrop of his dad because it just gave me so much more grace and so much more of an understanding. And it helped me then to reflect back to him because he couldn't see it. My dad just thought he wasn't good enough ever. And I was able, because of that, like my dad handed me this like broken baton, you know, but it was the best that he could do. And I got to like fix it up a little bit and hand it back to him, you know, and this wonderful like exchange of God's grace and his love um, but it's just, it's moving along. Like, that's, that's what we're aiming for. Like, we're just trying to, to, in some way, climb on the back or climb on the shoulders of where, we've, of where our family has been and make it a little bit better. Um, you're not going to be perfect. There may be areas of your life where you can become a master or an artist. Um, but then, but give yourself a break. And uh, give yourself a break. And remember that we have a God who is in heaven, right? He has infinite perspective. Um, and his expectations are so much healthier than ours. And so I want to close just with some application. Because <clears throat> during Lent, we really want you to, um, to process this in your denial and devotion to God, um, you've got these bookmarks, and they say, um, pray, write, and speak. This is what we'd like you to do. Pray, write, and speak. Um, and, uh, and as you think about your family situation, uh, there's just some questions that you can write in the little box, in the little box here. You can carry this with you. But um, yeah, the, the, the questions are, what happened? So like, write down the top 10 most significant memories you have from your childhood. Some will be good, some will be bad. Um, make a list and begin to think about how they affected you. Uh, and then the second question I want you to ask is, what did you come to believe? What did you come to believe? And so here you're trying to discern sort of I am statements that come from these experiences. Um, things like, I'm not good enough. Or, I have something valuable to offer. That can be a good thing that you might have learned from an experience. You want to write down, what did you come to believe? And then the third question is, what does Jesus have to say about this? Because the gospel's good news, and there are times we've come to believe something that's not true, and we want to open ourselves up and ask ourselves, what does Jesus think about this? What does Jesus have to say about me? Um, and you can do this by praying, by writing, and journaling, um, and then by speaking. You, you need a close friend to walk with you in the middle of this. Um, you want to be able to share what you're processing and what you're learning with someone else because sometimes we don't know what Jesus has to say. Um, we could tell someone else what Jesus has to say about them, but when it comes to us, it's much more difficult. And so you want to be able to speak about this to someone else and just you know, tell them what you're learning and ask them, hey, here's what I think Jesus might have to say. Do you know of anything that Jesus might have to say to my situation? Um, and then uh, our time is gone. Here's some psalms for the week. 
Um, I've been giving you psalms each week that help you to pray through these sorts of things uh, when life is up, down, or sideways. Each one of these psalms has a component in it of the next generation. And so here you see the psalmists. They are they're praying through things that they've experienced with a view to how can we practice generational redemption? How can we be an upturn in the trajectory from generation to generation? And so I commend those psalms to you this week. Um, and I just, I hope that, oh man, I, I hope that you'll press into this. I hope that you'll do some work this week. Um, and I hope that, uh, that you do it with someone else so that you can, uh, you can experience community as you pursue this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you, God, for being so long-suffering, infinite in patience. God, I, I just feel like you have lifted the burden here this morning that you're giving us permission to make the progress that we're able to make and nothing more. So please speak to each one of us. I pray that from this moment that family lines would be changed. I pray that from this moment that directions that families have been headed in would turn and that you would Remind us of who you are and how you feel about us in the midst of our brokenness in our families. God, bring new life by the power of your spirit and give us the courage to follow you uh, into the darkness so that we can bring your light and so that we can do our part to change the direction that our families have gone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.